Welcome to the Crack House Chronicles, your favorite true crime podcast. I am Donnie, and with me is a man that wants everyone to know that when he's behind a slow car, he steers a little bit to the left and to the right so people behind him can see that it's not his fault. That's right. It's Dale. It's like NASCAR, baby. <laughs> you got to let them know, man. Yeah, get them to get up in that rear view. Yeah. Get out of the way. We're trying to get out of here. People, you are allowed to drive the speed limit. They give you that much. At least that much. Go that much. <laughs> Sound a little frustrated, don't you? <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. I hate getting behind a slow car, man. I'm telling you, just pull out in front of you, go two mile an hour, and yeah. then, turn, then turn. Yeah, and then turn a hundred yards down the road. Oh, it kills me. I can't stand it. <laughs> What's going on, dude? Oh, same old, same old, man. Ready to bust out a good, good episode. We're here, gonna man. bust out a good one today. Yeah, ain't that what the kids say? It's busting, but no, bussing. That's what it is. My is bad. That, I don't know that. Yes, yeah, bussing. I don't know that young lingo stuff. <laughs> you got to stay up on that, man. I got to, I guess. <laughs> you got any good shout-outs to anybody you want to mention today, Dale? Oh, we got a, yeah, let's see. Let me look at my, my note sheet here. You got some notes? No, not really. I just made that up because I had to reach over here and get a piece of paper. It's not really notes. It's just, uh, you know, my little sketchy pad. <laughs> anyway, we'd like to give a shout-out to our good buddy, Angie Williams Chaplin. It's our uh, guest on your girl that moved out to Texas, man, and she always, uh, She's always uh, pulling for us and spreading the word. She's been going through a lot, had a lot of problems, but she's still fighting a good fight, even though she's now over in Alabama. And we like to say we're always thinking about you and uh, give a big congrats on your new grandbaby there. Angie, we are thinking about you, girl. I'm telling you, we, we appreciate everything you do for us. We really do. And that's about all I got, homie. All right. If anybody wants to go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review, please do it. Please do. It don't take but a second. You just click that five star, write something in the box, and... Yeah, something. Please, something. You can just use the word something if you want to. Yeah, and it it does help the cause. <laughs> yes, believe it, it or not. Yeah, it does. It puts us on up on the charts and. Except on Samsung. Yeah, we're not on Samsung yet, but we're trying. Damn it! <laughs> I'm telling you. And if you want to throw a few dollars in the gas, the gas money cup, we appreciate that too. We do appreciate it. Everything we get. And order something from the store page. Yeah, you need a cool shirt, man. Yeah, we got to, man. Everybody. Support the crack house. Get you something. Yep. All right, dude, we are going to get into our case this week. All righty. And this is a little different, a little complicated. I think you just picked stuff to piss me off. Yeah, this is another one to piss <laughs> Dale off. It's just so damn complicated. No, it is, man. It's a lot of twists and turns, a lot of, lot of people involved. So yeah. we're going to try to take it slow and try to keep it straight as possible. Yeah, and try to figure out what the hell's going on here. Yeah, but this is the murder of Lisa Pruitt. Mm-hmm. Now, our story starts on Thursday, September the 13th of 1990. And this is what Lisa Pruitt described as the happiest day of her life, Dale. Yeah, I think we've seen in a couple episodes, don't ever say that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, don't ever say that. But she was 16 at the time, and she had told her good friends that, you know, it was the happiest day of her life. Mm-hmm. Everything was going great. Yeah, everything was good news and joy. That's what she had said. Mm-hmm. And Lisa attended Shaker Heights High School. This is in Ohio. Mm -hmm. And it's like a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio. Pretty upscale neighborhood. Yeah. From everything I've read. (laughs) To say the least. Yeah, and Lisa had a lot of friends there at Shaker Heights. And she was pretty popular, too. Yeah, very smart girl. Mm -hmm. She was sharp wit, and she loved poetry. Yes. And she was also involved in a ton of extracurricular activities. Like student council, marching band, she played softball, field hockey. She was involved with a school newspaper. And she even wrote a poem that was 
in a student magazine called the Cimitine. Easy for you to say. Yeah. But the poem went like this. Flitting, floating, falling on the ground, I freeze on children's eyelashes and blur their altered vision of the world. They see a different earth than I, of candy and playgrounds and eternal smiles. I see the truth, cold, bare trees, stripped of life and hard ground. Man. Pretty deep. That's some heavy stuff. It is. <laughs> but this day on September the 13th of 1990, Lisa had an appointment to get her driver's license. That's right. Yeah, so it, like you said, everything was going great for her. Yes, sir. And she had just wished that her boyfriend was there to congratulate her. And at the time, she was dating a guy named Dan Dreifert. <laughs> he was a teenage boy there at Shaker Heights. And from all accounts, Dale, he was pretty much a rebel yeah bad boy rebel in a band yeah had a band it was a band called uh, your mother and her howling commandos wow (laughs) okay that's original yeah and the band that he was in they practiced in the basement of his house yeah built more yep and it was a room called the howling commando room and it was described by dan's house being a mansion yeah, they went online. Now, I've looked at it online. I've looked at it on Google Earth, and it's a pretty massive house. It's a nice spread, if yep. you say. Yeah. But getting back to Lisa wishing that Dan would be there to congratulate her, Dan had been in a mental hospital for a little while. He'd spent about 35 days in Cleveland's clinical mental health facility. Right. And according to reports, Dan was diagnosed with having some suicidal tendencies. And he had attempted suicide at least on one occasion. Right. And he was prescribed medication. And he continued to struggle with some mental illness. Not exactly sure what it was. But, right. But the doctors there believed that he was stable enough to be discharged and go home. He was good to go. Yep. Now, about 2 o'clock on September the 13th, Dan was discharged from the mental facility. And his father picked him up. And around 3 o'clock that afternoon, Dan rode his bicycle to Shaker Heights High School to surprise Lisa. Mm-hmm. And he found her studying chemistry with uh, another friend of hers named Kim Rathbone. Now, Kim lived in the house directly behind Dan's house, the mansion. Right. And before Lisa and Dan and Kim had been an item, they were still close and often talking through the fence that separated their properties or by phone until late at night yeah i think they dated earlier like sixth grade or something so mm-hmm. it wasn't nothing serious i don't think but they were they were good friends and often would just hang out yeah been friends forever yeah yeah but within minutes of dan's arrival more of dan's friends were there to welcome him back yep with hugs and everything pats on the back and all that good stuff yeah it was a big surprise that he just showed up yeah but this really made lisa's day because like i said everything was going great for her mm-hmm. and Dan escorted Lisa to her mom's car. Yep. She said, go get her license. Yep. And as soon as Dan got home again, Kim Rathbone, the neighbor that lived behind him, came over. And they sat on the back porch and they talked. And Kim wanted Dan to return some of her mementos that she had sent him to cheer him up while he was at the clinic. Right. I think she had sent him some care packages and different things yeah i think it was like some maybe some pictures of him and her or some random stuff that she wanted to send him to cheer him up but she liked to have him back too i get that his keepsakes yeah i get that in a way right well kim and cut his hair also so about 6 p.m that evening dan ate dinner with his parents 
Now, sometime around 8 p.m., Ken Workman showed up. He had a nickname called Tex. Yeah. I don't know why. But yeah, I don't know. Living in Ohio, why, why you call him Tex? Maybe that or something. Yes. Could have been. But they sat on the porch and sort of shoot the breeze just a little while while Dan played his guitar. And a little after 9, Lisa and her father pulled into the driveway. And Lisa got out to talk to Dan for just a little bit. But she couldn't stay long. Her father had agreed to bring her by for just a couple minutes after her flute lesson. Right. But Lisa's father remained in the car in the driveway while Lisa and Dan walked around the corner of the house. I think they were just making out just a little bit and having a few words before they left. I'm sure. They hadn't seen each other in a long time. Yeah, it been... A little bit of time. I think Dan was able to get out of the clinic for like a weekend... Pass or something. Yeah, and she, he would see Lisa briefly during those weekends but it was just for maybe an hour or so before he had to go back now when they came back they were talking about dan's hair yes is he this guy's new haircut yep and dan said uh he wanted to cut lisa's hair yeah giving her a hard time yeah they were just picking i think and yeah, i think uh, tex had some long hair but he had it like shaved on the sides and since dan had got his hair cut the clippers was still sitting there so they were giving her a hard time about going to cut uh, her hair because she liked it really long yeah she had long uh, dark brown hair yeah yeah and he said i'm gonna get text to hold you down i'm gonna cut your hair but it was all just, just big, big joke just just playing yeah joshing but, if you will <laughs> yeah but lisa told dan that she was going to sneak out of her house that night mm-hmm. and come back around 12 midnight or 12 30 a.m yeah i think she only lived like a mile and a half down the road yep and a couple of their friends named chris jones Becca Boatwright planned to do the same, and Lisa left. Mm-hmm. And this is when Tex got on Dan's bike, and he rode it to Shaker Square to get cigarettes mm-hmm. and returned, and then left again for good. Right. Yeah, I think he went up to Shaker Square, got some cigarettes, and seen a couple of their friends, hung around for a little bit, and mm-hmm. then, then came back down, dropped off his bike. <clears throat> and he decided, yeah, he wasn't going to stay over to, to hang out. Yeah. But they were going to supposedly have a, what they called a robo-party. Yeah. That's, uh, Dan had said that on the, whenever he got out of the institution, he was definitely going to have a robo-party. So it wasn't something that they had planned for sure. It's just something he had said. So it was kind of coming up that they thought they might pull it off. Yep. But a robo-party, this is something Dan had learned while at a youth camp. And he had told all of his buddies and friends about it. That's where they consume large amounts of Robitussin. Mm-hmm. Robitussin cough syrup. And it says it makes you have a, like... Some kind of hallucination. Yeah, and just... You're getting high off of this Trip stuff. out, yeah. yeah. And it doesn't show up on any drug test or right. anything like that. So it's kind of crazy. It's, it's Dan, it was a 90s thing, I'm assuming. Yes, Dan's way of sort of getting a high without actually getting high right yeah maybe high way high without illegal drugs pretty much Put yeah that way but at eleven thirty that night dan went to his room and he was putting away some stuff that he had brought home from the clinic and he was listening to some, to some music now around midnight dan's sister deb called she was away at college right and dan's father talked to deb on the master bedroom phone while his wife picked up the phone in the next room. Yeah, his little, the little office thing. Yep. And Dan stood at the foot of the father's bed, you know, just listening and sometimes adding to the conversation, you mm-hmm. know, just having a uh, talk with his, their sister. He well, was his chiming sister. in there. 
And when their parents were done, Dan spoke to Deb alone using the phone and the adjacent den. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think his dad said, would you like to talk to Dan? It's like, well, sure. So that's why they jump in there and talk a little bit. Yep. Now, around 1215, according to Dan's father, Dan returned to his bedroom. Right. And 15 minutes later, they heard some screaming. Yeah. Outside. Yeah, outside. Dan was in his bedroom when he heard someone outside screaming. Right, really loud. Yep. And he went outside to see what was happening. Well, at the same time he heard the screaming, I think his his room and his parents' room were like separated with a bathroom in between. Yeah. And when the, the screaming come up, his dad hollered, did you hear that, right? Yeah. And he's like, yeah. So he said that uh, he went in to see his dad, and he said, good, you have your clothes on. But go outside and see what's going on because his dad was naked. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which was, I don't I understand. Guess, well, I guess he was in the bed because of him and the wife was already ready to go to bed, and I guess he's a naked sleeper. I guess. Anyway, they, they had been reading their books or whatever, so he had to grab some clothes. So Dan just took off to go see what he could see, what was mm-hmm. going on outside. Mm-hmm. And they say that, you know, it's not that odd that they hear some screaming every now and again in that neighborhood. And it could be somebody driving up and down the road, having fun, just pulling pranks and stuff. But this this was a little bit different. Yeah. So he went to go see what the hell was going on. Mm-hmm. And once uh, he got outside, he walked around, him and his dad. His dad walked out on the stoop, and uh, he had uh, went outside looking around, and he didn't see anything. Looking back toward the from where the scream came from. Right. And walked around and looked up and down the road and stuff, and he just didn't see anything. So, and didn't hear anything else. Mm-mm. So, they was gonna. They thought about calling the police, but he's like, "Well, I really didn't see anything to call the police over." Because, like you said, sometimes they hear screams. Right. So uh, they just decided to, to go back in the house. Yeah. And then once they got in the house, I think he went back to to start, you know, cleaning up some stuff. And then he kind of hit him that, wait, Lisa was supposed to come over here. Yeah. And she hadn't shown up yet, so, hell, what if that was her? So him alone, Dan, Dan being him, uh, went back outside to look around a little more because he's he's starting to get concerned. Mm -hmm. And uh, while he was out looking around, he walked out all the way out and going around the perimeter, and he found Lisa's bicycle. Yeah, sort of leaning up against some brush or bushes there like thin bushes just leaning there yeah it was kind of like parallel to the road so it's just like it's leaning up against them not like it's drove up in them or hit it i don't think but yeah it's just kind of leaning up in it and he said saw the bike and he, he grabbed it and pulled it out and looked and sure enough it was hers yeah so that's when he decided to turn and he run back into the house and he called lisa's house mm-hmm. and uh he didn't get any answer just got the answer machine and he hung up and he called the police yes and he said, uh, there's something going on. We heard some screaming. Now I found my girlfriend's bicycle, and I don't know what the hell's going on. Yeah, that's when he told his parents, too, that uh, Lisa was coming over because they hadn't told the parents that right. they, they had. Uh, well, it was a few minutes later. The cops had got there, and when they got there, they said probably a good idea to go wake your parents. Yes. So that's when he went back in, and they were kind of, it was they were already asleep because his dad was like, well, he, you know, I said, I didn't really understand what was going on. with something about Lisa and a bicycle, and the, the police were here, so. Once he kind of come out of the fog a little bit, that's when he kind of figured out what was going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So when the police got there, Dan told him, why didn't he call 911 earlier? But he, he just said that he was too busy calling and running around. Yeah. Well, he didn't what he could do. The police said, well, we'll be looking around and we'll keep looking to see what we can find out what's going on. But I guess you guys can go back in the house and we'll see what we can do. And then we'll have a, a detective come over and, and uh, take a statement. But yeah, this is when uh, Dan went back inside and he woke his father. Who had walked outside to talk to the officer? Mm-hmm. 
And then while police was searching for his missing girlfriend, Dan went back to his room and went to sleep. Yeah. Which is crazy. I mean, you got you found your girlfriend's bike. Yeah. You've heard screams, and he goes to sleep. Yeah, he just went back in there and laid down. Yeah. So I would have been flipping out at this yeah. point. First of all, I would never have forgotten that she was coming over. Yeah, we mean you've had this conversation <laughs> yeah. extensively. Yeah. I mean, even if, if you're 16 and you haven't seen your girlfriend in a month, and she's like, I'm going to sneak out of the house and come over and see you. You're not going to forget about it. You're going to be laser focused on that. Yeah. I mean, there's not going to be anything else on your mind except your girlfriend coming over the house. Right. You know, and I think they'd done it before. You know, she would come over and like throw a rock and hit his window or whatever, and she's going to let him in. But yeah, that's kind of odd to me. Um, and then he'd go and lay down is even odder, I think. Yeah. But uh, they kept looking, and then uh, finally they found her. Yeah, they found Lisa's body. Yeah, really, really close. Yes. And when they discovered her body, she had been stabbed 21 times. Right. All from the back. With a knife-like object. Yeah. They really couldn't tell exactly what it was. Right. Mm-hmm. Yep. So her blue jeans and her underwear had been pulled down and uh, and off of her left leg. And then her shirt, her uh, dark blue turtleneck had been pulled up over her bra. And then the coroner had later said that she had not been raped, though. Okay. She had bruises on her neck that might have been caused by her necklace, like someone was pulling it from behind. And uh, her eyes were uh, open and then stared blankly back toward Dan's house. It was kind of weird. Mm-hmm. So that's when uh, I think they went and woke him back up. About, it was about 4 o'clock in the morning when they found her. Yeah. But I'm thinking, man, if she was that close to the house, why would it take him so long to find her? But if you see the house and the grounds, I guess you would know. So, uh, yeah, and, and Dan Dreifert was read his rights and they told him that he was a suspect well, in, sure, in the aggravated murder of his girlfriend which i mean i get it yeah if her bike was in the yard and then or on the outskirts of the yard and then they find her like 30 feet from the back door or whatever it was it's uh it doesn't look good that's no for sure. but i'm sure it's dark and you can't see anything back there right that's why it's kind of odd like if it's that dark how would he find a bike that easy well, I mean, if he's Unless walking, it was more on the street, I guess. Yeah, and if it's lit up a little bit, some street lights. Yeah. You know, you could see that. Maybe even reflectors would would, would shine. True. So I, I get that, too. But, you know, if she had on a, a dark blue turtleneck, mm-hmm. you know, and, and some jeans, it would be hard to see her. Yeah. But Dan said it sounded like a female that screamed, and she was being forced to do something that they didn't want to do. Right. Well, he was right. And it lasted... For about 15 seconds. Mm-hmm. But he said he didn't. Yeah, that's when he was questioned about the scrape. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Like I said, Dan told police that he had forgotten Lisa was coming over to meet him that night. Hmm. After he had spoke with his sister on the phone, he said. And he had gone back to his room and was tidying up things when he heard the screams. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could kind of forget that all the other people who were supposed to show up did show up. But her? I don't know, man. Mm-hmm. Unless he was in there guzzling Robitussin or something. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. They didn't say he was impaired, but it just seems awful odd to me. This was crazy, though. He had uh, invited friends over for this robo party, and none of them showed up. Yeah, nobody came. Nobody came. And Dan told the detective that he went to his window, which he looked out over Lee Road. And at that moment, he said his father, that's when he cried out, did you hear that from his bedroom? Right. You know, it's, what else is odd. When he went, when he found the bike, he didn't even, like, yell out for her or anything. No. Mm-mm. And 
I thought that was really odd because that would be the first thing I would do. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't, I would just start looking everywhere. So, I mean, I don't know. This is a, this is an odd case and this is just the very beginning of the oddness. And Dan had also lied to the policeman, Dale. He had told the officer that his parents knew that Lisa was going to come over that night. Right, and they had no idea. No. That, that's why his dad was so um, in a fog when he was like, what do you mean, Lisa and Bicycle and all this stuff? Yep. Right. So that's kind of crazy, too. Now, the next day, Chris Jones, this was a good friend of Dan's, was at Dan's house when the yeah. evening news came on. Right. He was one of the guys that was invited, but he decided not to go because he was working on a school paper or something. Yep. Yeah. But when the 5 o'clock evening news came on, TV reporters hinted that Dan was the prime suspect in the murder. Makes sense to me. And this really upset Dan. Well, <laughs> that makes sense to me as well. Yeah. And later, Chris left Dan's house with two friends uh, named Dan Messenger and Scott Fierro. Uh, Messenger and Chris were dropped off, and Lisa's parents let them spend some time in her room. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Yeah, alone. Yeah. So I wonder why they were... I think they just went over to see her parents and then walked up to, to just, I don't know, just go to her room, I guess. I don't know. It was kind of odd. Yep. Then Chris, he returned to Dan's house to spend the night. Mm-hmm. And sometime that evening, he and Dan and Debbie went downstairs to the Howling Commando room. This was his band practice room. Practice room, yeah. To talk about the murder. Right. And this is where... It gets a little... This is where it all starts. Yes, this is where they brought up the possibility that another guy might have done it. And this guy's name was Kevin Young. Right. Now, Kevin Young, the day before, on September 13th, you know, we said Lisa was having a good day, but Kevin Young was not having a good day. It seemed everything was going bad for him. He was starting his freshman year at Ohio State University the following week, but he was mostly obsessed over the news of the former classmate of his being deployed to the Middle East Mm. after Iraq had invaded Kuwait. And he was worried that the government was going to reinstate the draft. Yeah. And Kevin's fears often got the better of him. There was a band trip to Toronto, and he had threatened to jump off the hotel balcony because a girl there had refused to go out with him. Yeah, he had some problems. Yep, and he was hospitalized and medicated. And Kevin complained that the medication made him feel strange, so his parents let him quit after taking it in October of 1989. Hmm. So they took him off his medication. Now, to look at Kevin back then, you'd never think that he would have trouble getting a date because, you know, like I said, he was a pretty handsome young guy. Right. He kept his hair neat and... You know, he had dark bangs that reached over his eyes, I guess sort of the trend at the time. Mm-hmm. And But he had a habit of ranting about blacks and Jews. He had some problems. Yeah. Yeah. Very racist opinions. And he was stating how these people were ruining Shaker Heights. Mm-hmm. But Kevin would spend a lot of his time at Arabica at Shaker Square. I think this was like a coffee shop type place. Yeah. You know, what do you call it? A hookah bar. Yeah. And this is where he would play chess against some really good players and sometimes even some grandmasters. Yeah, he was really here. good at it, yeah. Yeah. And he could actually hold his own with them. Oh, yeah. And he could even, they said he could even become a grandmaster chess yeah. player at one time. Right. If he had stayed with it. But he was the weird kid. Yeah, he you was. Know, the, the heavy metal kid, the Metallica, Anthrax shirt wearing guy. He is the. Dungeons and Dragons kid. 
So he was the kind of the outcast, especially at this time was just more near the satanic panic kind of thing going on. Mm-hmm. So anybody doing the weird stuff is going to be automatically the outcast. Plus add on all these weird tendencies and people he don't like and anything. I think a lot of stuff he said was just to get rile people up to get attention. But who knows what he really believed. I don't know. Yep. So while this one night while Kevin was at Arabica, a friend of his named Ken Workman that we mentioned before that went by Tex, mm-hmm. um, he'd came by and Kevin and Tex were blood brothers. Yeah. They became blood brothers the previous year, swearing allegiance to each other. You know, they'd cut their fingers and press them together. So right. this was a big deal. <laughs> but Tex, you know, he was dating Deb Dreifer. This was Dan's sister. Mm-hmm. But she had already left for college, and Tex was just 16 and still enrolled at Shaker Heights. So she had a pretty young boyfriend. Right. But Tex would often play hooky. And he was on probation at the time for truancy and some other things he'd gotten in trouble for. Correct. But Kevin and Tex, they sat at a table inside Arabica, and they talked for about 45 minutes. And Tex told Kevin that Dan was planning to host one of his Robitussin parties that night, the night that Lisa was killed. Right. And he told him that everybody was coming over about 12 to 1230. But he wasn't invited. No, he wasn't invited at all, which was weird. Well, I don't think he really wanted Kevin around. Mm-mm, probably not. The weird kid. Now, while they were all down in the howling commando room, this was Dan, his sister, and some of his friends. They discussed the possibility that Kevin Young might have killed Lisa. Right. And Chris later told detectives it started from Shane McGee and John George, who were two of their other friends, who had heard about a month before that Kevin wanted to kill both Dan and Lisa because he had seen them in love. Yeah, and he had a big crush on her for at least the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. You know, so he was really in love with Lisa. Yeah. And Dan had stolen her away, or at least that's the way he saw it. Yeah, and th- what I think what put him over the edge was that he had heard that uh, Lisa had given her virginity to Dan. Right. And I think this really caused him to snap yeah is what they were saying yeah somebody told kevin that they'd had sex together and he just went nuts mm-hmm. he was very aggressive but the threats weren't reported no no until the next day on september the 15th well and, you know people getting pissed off and they say a lot of stuff but when stuff like this happens that uh, that stuff is just kind of a rant and talking junk all of a sudden means a lot yeah yeah but like i said on september the 15th shane and john went to the shaker heights police and I think they were planning to throw all this on Kevin. Yeah, sure seems like it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, they go in there and, and we listened to a lot of stuff today and uh, yesterday and the day before and read a lot of stuff about the notes and actual brought, uh, you know, transcripts and stuff like that. So everybody who went in there had a story to say, but they pretty much all kind of point a finger at Kevin. And it was even reported that when Kevin found out that dan and lisa were sleeping together you know he freaked and uh, he was like that asshole yeah that asshole i hate him i'm going to kill him mm-hmm. i want her dead just flipped out yep so he was kevin was saying some pretty hard things mm-hmm. and it's hard to say why dan's friends fixated on kevin as a suspect but did they believe he was a killer i don't know if they believed it was or not but they were sure thinking that out of all the the circle of friends, he was the one who looked like would be the the 
the most they thought would uh, actually have done something like this. Mm-hmm. And I don't know who done it, you know, or, or actually, or they, none of them say they know who done it, but pretty much they think he, you know, if anybody did, it was him, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, because he was the weird kid. Yeah, exactly. And he had made threats. Yep. Now, on September the 15th, uh, one of their friends, Becca Boatwright, she told police on the afternoon following Lisa's murder, she had gone to Arabica and found Kibbing sitting there. And somehow or another, she got on the topic of rape. Hmm. And early news broadcasts were reporting that Lisa had probably been raped. Right. And this is when Kibbing said, I don't think she was raped. I told him that I had heard she'd been hit on the head with a blunt object or something. And he said, no, I think she was stabbed. So it's like, whoa. Yeah, how does, how does he know that? <laughs> right. So then it just makes him look that much more guilty. And then there was another cat. There was another classmate named Jennifer Margolis. She told police that she had been with Kevin sitting at Arabica when he found out that Dan was at, out of the hospital. And Kevin said, I have some unfinished business to take care of with Dan. Yeah. So even if he, if he did it or if he didn't do it, he just keeps digging a hole deeper. Yeah. He sure looks guilty in everybody's eyes. And Jennifer said she realized Kevin was a suspect only after she had heard it from her friend Becca hmm. and Kim Rathbone. And in her statement, Kim Rathbone claimed that she had heard that Kevin had said that he was going to get Lisa. Right. So it was making they're all making Kevin look pretty bad at this point. It's not looking good. Now, Tex, it was two days later, in his second statement to police, he mentioned a detail that he had left out before, that he had told Kevin at the coffee shop that Lisa was visiting Dan that night, that she was murdered. So they're getting some stuff mixed up, Dale. Yeah, well, you know, and he goes, well, I forgot to tell you all this, you know, and they're adding all this on there. I don't know, it just seems like they're piling on. They just keep pointing the finger at Kevin Young. And the finger's getting bigger. Yeah. They tended to direct the suspicion from dan to kevin mm. all the friends right were directing it to kevin and from this moment and from this moment on kevin was the only suspect yeah pretty much yeah uh, but the detectives were particularly suspicious about details in kevin's statement that sort of didn't jive with the other accounts right for example tex had told kevin about dan's robot party at arabica but kevin told police the conversation had taken place at the shack which was a nearby restaurant. And Kevin had actually met Tex at the shack the next day. Right. Well, you know, even and then the second statement, you know, when they signed off by him and his mom on the 17th, they dated it the 14th, which is weird. So I guess mm-hmm. they just went back to the first one. And then when, you know, when Kevin was brought into the station after 11 o'clock on the 15th, he denied ever threatening Lisa Pruitt. And he said the conversation with Shane McGee and John George never even taken place. After leaving Shaker Square, the night of the murder, he said he had went home, and both his mother and his father had saw him go into his room about 11.30 and at 11.45. He went downstairs and watched CNN because he couldn't sleep. So he had an alibi with his mom and his dad. Yeah. And I think even his dad said that they had actually played some video games that night. To about 1 o'clock. Right. So he had an alibi, but the Texans weren't buying it. No, they just totally ignored it. Yeah, because everybody else is telling them a whole different story. Now, on September the 16th, there was a search warrant that was served at the Young's house. And they found drawings of pentagrams, a mm-hmm. devil's face, a heart tattooed with a Christian cross stabbed with dripping blood. And they found Kevin's diary. And it was equally suspicious. Mm, looks like some stuff I'm drawing more <laughs> yeah. while we're talking here. In the diary, it said 
this is day one of my diary. My mom is a bitch and I hate her. I'll explain tomorrow. <laughs> and then it stated, I just want to take over the world, make the blacks and Jews and the Slavs and the Latins and the Yalas and the Semites subordinate to us. Mm. I am worth absolutely nothing, according to his journal. Yeah, that don't make you look good. No, it don't. But, you know, even when the Texas tell him they didn't believe him, he was he was still, you know, said, I'll take a polygraph. I'll do whatever. You know, I, I didn't do it. Mm-hmm. You know, and sitting there smoking cigarettes. But I don't know. And even, you know, he's like, I don't know. I just, why he always blaming him on me. Which is another thing to me. It's so funny that all these kids, you got to remember, all these kids are about 16 or so, 16, 17. And they're all smoking like freight trains and drinking robotizing and drinking beer while they're doing their homework and stuff. And, and nobody ever says nothing about that. And what's crazy, too, is Dan had wrote some stuff to Lisa that they totally ignored. Yeah, when he was in the treatment. Yeah. Dan had even wrote to Lisa, I tried to kill myself. I need out of here. This place has fucked me up. Yep. After I get out, give me some time to return to normal. I don't want you or I to make any poor decisions because of this place. And there was another note to Lisa. He quoted some lyrics from a um, a song that said, I am sorry now I killed you, for our love was something fine. Right. And till they come to get me, I shall hold your hand in mine. Yeah, and there was another one that said something about... Uh you know, there'll be a time when we disagree and you'll say something and be serious and don't let me get away with murder. But, you know, something I won't be able to let it go. And then another one was something about uh, I want to poke your eyeballs out with my pocket knife or something. Yeah, like my favorite pocket knife. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, there was some. So it, Kevin's not the only one that's got some damning stuff written down. Yeah. So I don't know. Pretty wild so far. But a lot of the friends, they were getting off because uh detectives they pulled uh tex workman's phone records and debbie driver records and they'd uh, revealed that tex had called debbie's dorm at around twelve nineteen, and the call lasted until about twelve fifty four. right so they were ruled out as a suspect but so, they also increased the amount of time dan was alone prior to hearing lisa's screams no you gotta remember this is all landline phones yeah there was no cell phones back then right but now, Kevin Young was questioned extensively about his involvement in Lisa Pruitt's murder, but denied all accusations. Yeah. And authorities noted several discrepancies between witnesses' reports and Kevin's own statements, and he ultimately consented to a polygraph examination. Mm-hmm. And it was conducted in two parts, and the results were kind of mixed. He was determined to be deceptive while answering direct questions about Lisa's murder. Well, you know, they, they actually had talked to an FBI agent about how they should go about talking to this guy and uh, a profiler. And he's like, well, you know, you need to talk to him a certain way. He has no ego. He's got low self-esteem and he definitely fit a person that's capable of committing the crimes, but you got to go at him the right way. And they actually sent uh, detectives to Quantico to be trained how to even talk to this guy yeah be his friend because they pretty much think he's the guy that done it yeah they had their eyes fixed on him and it all goes back to if you remember when we said that all these other kids met up somewhere and then we're talking about stuff so it's not ever come out and said whatever but you know in my eyes it looks like the, all these kids all got together and got their story you know this is what we're going to say mm-hmm. so even if dan did it they they're not going to say nothing about it you know because they're basically pushing this guy's buttons said be his friend don't push him mm-hmm. 
and sort of play into what he has to say and just he's kind of a john hinckley type they thinking yeah know, pretty much where he fantasizes about women and he says stuff that happens that didn't happen and saying he might even be a serial killer you know yeah and they went over strategies to do it and they wanted to talk to him at night be prepared to question for hours and provide lots of pop and cigarettes i guess that's a soda some cokes yeah <laughs> talk to him about the crime in, in the third person in a by this time, Kevin had already moved into a dorm at Ohio State and was beginning to think, you know, everything's good and everything's behind him. So, because weeks had passed. Yeah, a couple of weeks had passed. So he had already moved in and started classes, and everything was going for him really good there. And he's, he's like surprised, and he was uh, excited. Actually, girls were talking to him and everything there. So it was like he, he finally got away from all this junk, and his life was turning around here. Mm-hmm. But then on October 26, 1990, when he was on the phone with his father, he got a knock at the door. It was Shaker Heights Police Sergeant Tom Gray. And uh, Kevin told him, Dad, to, uh, let me call you back. Yeah. So this is when they were interrogating Kevin. Right. So they went and talked to him, and they were going to use their so-called soft approach that the profiler you know, wanted them to do. And So they didn't want to talk to him in like an interrogation room. They wanted it to be somewhere uh, more comfortable and less know, threatening. Not in, yeah, more less intimidating, I was going to say. But yeah. same thing. Uh, and they so got they a, went to a hotel room. Yeah. yeah and uh, gave him some cigarettes and soda and then this guy's acting like he's his best friend you know he wants to tell me what's going on i gotta help you uh, they, they're really thinking you did it but i don't know if i can help you just let me know we gotta do what we're gonna do we want you to talk to me and do it any way you want to do it you know? mm-hmm. so he kind of fell right into that and started talking to him and kind of befriending him yeah and he you know told him about he was worried about the draft and all that stuff so yeah it's trying to just ease into kevin talk about school talk about college life talk about his roommate mm-hmm. said he had a pretty good roommate and then he moved it over a little bit more about the what had happened and they said well he asked kevin said well you know what would you think you know if you were put yourself in the person who had killed lisa what do you think you know what what would have happened at this point he should have shut his damn mouth and left yeah he should have and that's where kevin's like well just between us you know he goes yeah you know just kind of help me think what you what what you're thinking and uh, he said Kevin told him, you know, that he thought that Lisa had been riding her bike when the killer grabbed her. He said that uh, that the killer hadn't planned the attack, that he was just walking around and saw Lisa. And when she got close, something snapped. And Kevin was sure that whoever had done it would never kill again because he was probably so scared when Lisa died. Probably. And I'm going, damn, dude. What are you saying here? Yeah. So he, need, he, he needs to shut up. Yeah. So he, so detectives, you know, he's probably getting excited here. So he's pushing for more details, you know. He said, well, you know, what would the killer say? So, you know, and still pretending, to, I want you to act like the killer. And Kevin told him the man probably stabbed Lisa from the front just a couple times. But, you know, she had actually been stabbed from behind about 21 times. But I don't think he knew that. No. Or at no. least he didn't act like he knew it. And he said, well, is there any reason we might find the fingerprints on Lisa's jeans? And he said, no, you can take my fingerprints if you want. They shouldn't be on her clothes at all. And he offered again to take a polygraph. Yeah. And it was by 2 a.m. that this time Kevin was strapped into a lie detector again into adjacent room in the hotel. Yep. And there was a polygraph expert, Tom Kahansky, and he asked Kevin seven questions. And in Kahansky's opinion, the results of the two were inconclusive. All the other questions, he found minor deception. Mm-hmm. And he told Sergeant Gray that Kevin seemed fatigued and probably should get some sleep before right. being questioned again. So they let Kevin sleep, but the interrogation wasn't overdue. No. 
you know, and he kept, you know, in, in the stuff we went through the day, I mean, he was buddy-buddy in him. He could do whatever you want to, and this can be over any time you want. If you want me to take you back to your dorm, we can do that. If you want to call your parents, we can do that. and go get something to eat, whatever you want to do. And So he was just, I mean, he gave him every chance to get out of it, or at least that's what he told him. Yeah, and he, he told Kevin just, you know, call your parents. Yeah, whatever. Just, yeah, yeah. Just let them know. I'm he, here to help you. Yeah. That's Whatever what it, I can do. Yeah. Being his buddy. Right. I guess just try to get something out of him. Yeah, so, and, and, you know, he even told him he'd take him back, and he's like, well, if you take me back now, then I feel like I'm going to spend the rest of the night explaining to my dorm you know, dorm roommates or whatever what was going on. So he offered to give him, let him sleep there in the hotel and gave him that room, and he went to another room. So he he said that sounds like good, you know, and he even slept there and said just left him a note that said call me in the morning, you know, whenever you get up and you're ready. So he said the next morning at about 830 he called him and said he was up and he's like well i'm in the shower so go ahead and take a shower and he said that sounds good to me so do that and then we'll go get some breakfast i know the authorities they have a job to do but they were really bending over backwards for kevin to try to get some kind of confession out of him mm-hmm. to, to cork him into some kind of confession whatever it took right but kevin wasn't bending i mean he he kept saying i didn't do it yeah I didn't do it. What got him is, I think, or not what got him, but when he was saying all that stuff, even though it was third-person guessing, it all sounded really damning. Yeah. You know, and then they got back from, from breakfast, and they sat around a while, and he's like, well, he's still nervous. We can do this now. But it was running into time to where the hotel room needed to be swapped out as far as checkout times. So they decided that they would go to lunch and then come back and change rooms and then do the other polygraph. Yeah. So that's what they did when they went and ate lunch. And they came back, and Tommy got back. Uh, Kahansky was set up in a different room. And uh, he thought he surely had Kevin calmed down and ready to go by then. So when they walked in, he went in and went to the bathroom. But when he came back out of the bathroom, he looked like he was already tense back up. Yeah. And smoking cigarettes pretty hard. Yeah. And he said he was using the bathroom a lot, too. Yeah, well, they were feeding him pop you know like what they kept saying pop well, that's what they call it up there but yeah. we call them cokes or sodas <laughs> yeah feeding them drinks <laughs> drinks and cigarettes because he always just made sure he had plenty of cokes and cigarettes on hand yeah so i mean somebody made a big deal about it going to the bathroom a couple times but i mean every time he turned around he was giving them another soda so i don't really think much about that but they did say that going to the bathroom and stuff like that he goes in there and probably stresses himself out in the bathroom or at least he's trying to get away and that's as far as he can go Mm-hmm. So it's, it's very possible, I guess. But anyway, um, when they got back and he went and took the other polygraphs, it showed deception too. And I think this one was actually worse than the first one. Yeah. And this when um, Kevin looked him right in the eyes and tears were welling up in his eyes. And yeah, that's because uh, the cop said, you know, this is, you know, this is bad. I'm really getting worried about it. You, you need to talk to me. You got to tell me the truth. And he's like, he cried. He was tearing up, and they're going, "Well, I think he did it." But I'm thinking, "Hell, he's probably going. I am screwed, man." Yeah. You know, you know, especially if he didn't do it. You know, he's like, "I, you know, I thought this is going to be easy to come in here and pass this thing, but now I'm in a world of trouble." I don't know why Kevin was talking. I don't know why he just just, just shut up. Yeah, he hadn't even talked to his mom. He, or he dad spent or nothing. Yeah. He spent two days with them. Yeah. He should have just. He was buying the buddy buddy or either that or he thought he was smarter than they are. One yeah, the, one and, or the other. And feeding into the buddy buddy, he was soaking that up because that's what he craves. Yeah, he needed the attention or that's what he was wanting. But then, according to Detective Gray, Kevin said he was scared and mm-hmm. he felt suicidal. Yeah, and he said he has nothing to live for, and he wanted to be hospitalized. Yep, said so he hadn't felt this suicidal since before when he was committed earlier. And this is when Gray told Kevin that he should call his parents. Right. 
but Kevin called his doctor instead. Yeah, he didn't want to call his mom. No. I think he was more scared of his mom than anything, and I don't, that don't make a lot of sense to me. Mm. So but, then he called what he called the doctor, and, and he had to leave a voicemail because nobody yeah. answered, right? Mm-hmm. Detective Gray, you know, said, well, maybe you should call back and at least leave a number, you know. And, and he put all the car, you know, the long-distance calls on the, the state credit card. And, I mean, he was doing everything he could to do, be buddy-buddy. Yep. And uh, later the doctor did call, but he said, I can help you out, but you're going to have to call your parents. I think it was something <laughs> to do with insurance, so you're going to have to call them anyway. Yeah. So, hmm. But the interview was over, and that night, Kevin was admitted to Laurelwood Hospital, and he remained there for two months. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, you know, he you know he called home finally and found out that they had, had another search warrant while he was up there doing this. And then his mother put Kevin in touch with an attorney, and that's when they shut it down, and he was admitted to the hospital. Yeah. He should have done that first. Mm-hmm. Now, at the urging of his lawyer, Kevin took another lie detector test. Is this after the two months he was, yes. he was in? The, okay. And it was administered by renowned expert Bill Evans, who had been used by both prosecutors and defense lawyers. And this time, Kevin passed it. Hmm. The method used by Shaker Heights had been debunked in 1982, according to Kevin's attorney. And Shaker Heights police could not get the prosecutor's office to take their circumstantial case to a grand jury. Hmm. And Kevin's name was leaked to the media as the main suspect in Lisa's murder. Yeah, I'm sure it was leaked. (laughs) And when reporters discovered that Kevin's father, uh, Jay Talbot Young, was a law partner of Shaker Mayor Steve Alfred, all hell broke loose Mm -hmm. down. And reporters smelled a cover-up and suggested the Youngs were hiding Kevin at Laurelwood Hospital. And Carl Mundy, he staked out at Kevin's house and waited for him to return. Right. But Kevin was finally released from Laurelwood on December the 12th. And the frenzy kicked into high gear and rumors dragged out for months. And no one no one could understand why the police were not arresting Kevin. They didn't have nothing on him? No, they had I mean, nothing. Everything is circumstantial, and it all comes from these other kids ratting on him. Or, I don't want to say ratting on him because he didn't do anything. Well, I don't know that he did. They were throwing shade his way. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> That's why it's like, it pisses me off. Yeah, the Dale's pissed off about this episode. <laughs> I don't never know what the hell's going on here. Yeah, so they're, everybody's mad because you're not, you know, you're not arresting this kid, but, I mean, they have nothing to go on. Now, detectives, they supplied Dr. Murray Myron of Syracuse University with Kevin's statements, interviews, writings, and polygraph results. And in a June 11th phone conversation with Shaker Heights Deputy Chief Jane Brosius, Myron suggested that Kevin suffered from multiple personality disorder and was able to disassociate himself from the murder, which was why he couldn't be pinned down by the polygraph. Hmm. But after Brosius noted almost casually that lisa's boyfriend had been released from a mental facility that day it's the same day yeah she was killed yeah now deputy chief brosius followed up with dr myron on july 2nd and by then myron had had time to review some of the evidence related to dan dryford and some concerns regarding his behavior on the night of the murder right so i don't think dan was completely ruled out but it wasn't as strong as what they were focusing on kevin young i don't know man because i think once they Sink their teeth into to Kevin. They kind of put the blinders on. Mm-hmm. They could have been. Right. You know, and then Myron, you know, he he said, you know, that Dan called 911 on his own, 
and then there all these police vehicles and crime scene being established and then dan goes to bed you know which he found pretty unusual like like me and that's somewhat discon- disconcerting, you know. So, but that's academic because it's it's not Dan that we're going to interrogate. It's Kevin, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so whether or not he's the guy or not, we want to give the full shot to Kevin and use our best psychological coercion that we can. So he basically said right there that it doesn't really matter what Dan did. We're going full force on Kevin, and that's when they decided to do like the clockwork orange thing on him, you know. And instead of going the easy way, they was going to turn the turn the heat up. Yep. And this is on uh, November the 24th of 92. The police finally got their indictment after two patients from Laurelwood Hospital came forward. And they claimed that Kevin admitted his guilt to them. Right. And he was charged with aggravated murder. Seems awful flimsy to me. Yeah, very, very flimsy. <laughs> but Kevin's father, he hired highly regarded Mark Devan to represent Kevin. Yeah. And he immediately earned his retainer. And when Assistant County Prosecutor Carmen Marino asked the judge to deny bail at Kevin's arraignment, Devan successfully argued for a reduced bond of $50,000. And Kevin's parents, they put up their house as collateral. Right. So they were, they were, his family were doing everything to help him. Right. Now, Kevin's trial began on June 28, 1993, and it was broadcast live nationally on court TV. Mm-hmm. And the attorney asked him about seeming threatening letters that he had sent to Lisa. And Dan said they were harmless and funny. This is when Dan was on the stand. (laughs) And said Lisa thought so, too. But, yeah. Well, yeah, because she ain't here to say they're not funny. No, I like somebody wanting to poke my eyeballs out with their favorite pocket knife. And when they asked him to explain when he went to sleep when the police were outside searching for his girlfriend, Dan just said that sleep was his way to escape from what he had feared had happened. Which I don't, yeah, I don't buy that. I don't buy that That's either. Just, I mean, everybody has their own way of dealing with stuff, but just, I mean, your girlfriend's m- missing, and you just found her bicycle, but you're going in the house to go to sleep? Right. Y'all handle it. I'm going to sleep, man. Yeah, I'm good. <laughs> now, on July the 6th, Devan unveiled a surprise, a statement by Edward Curtin, the police officer who was the first to arrive on the scene, and Curtin said that Dan had told him that he had never heard the screams. Hmm. And on July 17th, Kevin's father, J. Talbot Young, took the stand. He testified at the same time of the murder that he and Kevin were home alone playing video games. Right. And they went to bed around 1.15 a.m. So he has an alibi, but they're yeah. not, you know. And his dad's a pretty outstanding guy. It's not like it's just some trailer park dude. Now, on July the 21st, after 10 hours of deliberations... The jury found Kevin Young not guilty. Not guilty. Yep. A week later, a plain dealer reporter named James F. McCarty wrote an article suggesting that jurors would have voted differently if they had gotten a chance to see the evidence withheld by the judge. And Kevin was devastated by this attack. And that day, he climbed onto a bridge over Interstate 271 and threatened to jump off. Hmm. But a Mayfield Heights police sergeant talked him down and kevin and his family there's they were fearful of the media right well i don't blame him and though his father and mark devan declined to comment they had spoke to kevin briefly in a cleveland heights newspaper yeah i think uh mark devan had also you know pulled some stuff on prosecutor carmen marino and he 
he let it be known that Marino had done some shady stuff as far as he had had witnesses lie on the stand before. And also when he uh, magically found these two patients who uh, come up with this stuff where he said that Kevin had admitted his guilt to them, it's like, eh, I don't know if that's a little shady too. So right. I think a lot of that had to do with him getting getting off here. Because, you know, like I said, there's there's nothing, there's no hard evidence at all. Zero, none. It's all circumstantial. Every bit of it. But Kevin was acquitted of this. He was found not guilty. Yeah. But uh, his life was ruined, man. Yeah. I mean, he couldn't get dates. Yeah, well, uh, you know, think about it. Even, you know, anybody just Google his name, you know, once that was a thing. Like, who would do? Maybe he'd get one and then the girl go home and Google him and then you're done. Yeah. He was a murder suspect and was on trial for murder. Yeah. Even though he was acquitted. And possibly didn't do anything. No, but Kevin did move back in with his parents and had little odd jobs around Shaker Heights, painting, doing different odd jobs and stuff. So, right. Yeah, this ruined Kevin's life completely because uh, Kevin was found dead in his apartment at the age of 44. Right. On January the 14th, 2017. and uh, But the medical examiner didn't release the uh, cause of death hmm. yeah it's pretty sad yeah you know and it seems like we've tried to find a lot of the other players and this stuff and it seems like everybody just disappeared it's kind of crazy yeah but yeah you can't there's not a lot on this case you you have to you can find bits and pieces online but it's tough to research this case dude yeah that's true. There's some stuff on Reddit. There's some articles and newspaper articles, but in a way, the True Crime Garage did a. That's where we uh, got a lot of our uh, information from, with those uh, all that uh, transcripts. It's a six part series, and if you want to dive into that, I'm gonna shout out to those guys because that was pretty cool. But uh, it's just basically them having actors read off all these statements. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a. Uh, pretty thorough but it, you know it's a lot of facts but that's basically all it is yeah and it's just well i say facts it's just them reading everybody's statement yeah and, and they were reading the interviews that took place word for word so it's it's actual facts yeah from the case but you know these guys they did a great job with it it's six parts so check it out if you get a chance to do that yeah shout out to those guys yep so really we don't know what the hell is going on here and, you know, some people think Dan did it. You know, what did he come on? Maybe he come home and started drinking the, the Robo and blacked out and did it. But, you know, if he did, then his dad is, you know, giving him the alibi. We're saying they both heard the scream at the same time. So, because we have here, you know, the policeman saying that he never, he said he didn't hear no scream. So, was he there? Was he not there? I know. And I think, you know, Donnie, you had your uh, eye on text for a long time because he was, you know, kind of, could be there and put himself at the right place at the right time, but I just don't see him. Why would he be alibi? And I'm thinking, you know, Kevin, he lived, you know, near the school, which is kind of between uh, Dan's house and uh, the square up there. And uh, I don't know, maybe, maybe he did do it. Who knows? But you know, because th- you know, like we were talking today, and I was like, well, he does. He does go off the deep end here or something, so maybe he was pissed off and he was going to go over and confront Dan, and he goes over there, and then he sees her riding up on the bike. Yeah. The opportunity presents itself, you know, and then so the bike's on the side of the road, and then she's in his backyard. That could just take care of both of them, you know, with one one swoop there. Yeah. So I don't know, but, you know, then you got to say, well, he's got an alibi, so some, anywhere, somewhere, somebody's lying somewhere, unless yeah. it was just uh, none of this circle and just happened to be somebody who done it, but... I don't know. It's, it, it's awful odd. This 
this pretty affluent neighborhood. I mean, that house is huge. It's a, it's a mansion. I mean, that's what they said it was. It was a mansion. And to be in that neighborhood would be kind of odd for it to happen and then drag her 30 feet from the back of the house. Yeah. You know, and even uh, Rathbone, who lived behind them, she said she heard the screams too. Yeah. But, you know, her her her, uh, her memory to me, or her statement was kind of sketchy because when she's telling the story, when she's giving her statement, she says she's up searching, or not searching, she's up researching or studying for, a, I think, a history exam. And then she says, I woke up and heard the screams. And he goes, oh, and the, the guy giving the interview says, okay, he says, well, how did you hear it? He says, well, my my room is adjoined to my brother's room through with a bathroom, which both doors were open, and he keeps his windows open at night. So I heard it come through his window. So I went to my window and looked out and didn't see anything. Well, just a few minutes later, he said, so how did you know what time it was? It was Because she said uh, it was at about 1235. And uh, she said, well, I was up studying. That's when I heard it. He says, so, so wait, so you were awake the whole time? She goes, yeah, I was up studying the whole time. So she contradicts herself just yeah. within a few minutes there. So... And then when you listen to some of the other, the other statements, it's kind of like, I don't know, just it doesn't sound like they're being truthful to me. Yeah, it just is like, okay, this is what we're going to say, and then you know they kind of throw them off with the questions that they ask them because they kind of get out of order with what they already have in their mind that they're going to go in there and say because you know a lot of these kids went on their own to give the statement. Yeah, I know a lot of them were called in, but a lot of them went over there, you know, just well, I need to tell you this kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I hate this, the girl died on her, the best day of her life, and nobody's paid the price for it, but nobody knows what happened. I am. But and if they do, and there's nobody's talking. My reason for thinking Tex was involved, because, you know, Tex and Kevin were blood brothers. Yes. I mean, they had a, a devoted— They've done the Grizzly Adam thing here. A, a, an, allegiance, <laughs> an allegiance to each other. Right. And Kevin knew that Lisa was coming over to dan's house right and kevin was he knew his but his blood brother was upset because of this and maybe he took it on and got rid of her and did it for him yeah that was my reasoning for thinking that you know and which kevin i think at one time did say you know if that was the what happened how how would i ever live with myself with that kind of guilt he did that for me yeah so maybe he thought the same thing so i don't know did he have an alibi text i, I don't know i don't think he did so it could have been. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's just that's why this thing pisses me off because it's so confusing. Even after listening to so much on this, that we the, well, the, the, I know there's not a ton on this to, to listen to, but the, everything we found was just over and over and over to try to soak it all in, and it's still confusing. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, that's it. That is the. That is it. That is the murder of Lisa Pruitt, still unsolved to this day. Yep. Nobody has paid the price. Nope. Mm-mm. Except her. Poor kid. Poor kid. Best ever life. Best ever life, right. All right, dude. We are going to get out of here. Let's roll. We want everyone to be safe, be careful, and always be aware of your surroundings. Because the next episode could be about you. This is the Crack, Crack House, House Chronicles. Chronicles.